welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swans, and today is the Feast of St. Charles Luanga and Companions. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with your spirit. To prepare ourselves, let us acknowledge our sins. I confess to Almighty God and and to you, my brothers and sisters, that that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore I ask, Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Let us pray. O God, who have made the blood of martyrs the seed of Christians, mercifully grant that the field which is your church, watered by the blood shed by St. Charles Luanga and his companions, may be fertile and always yield an abundant harvest. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy. From Paul, appointed by God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in his design to promise life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, dear child of mine, wishing you grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Night and day I thank God keeping my conscience clear and remembering my duty to him as my ancestors did. And always I remember you in my prayers. That is why I am reminding you now to fan into a flame the gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. God's gift was not a spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power and love and self-control. So you are never to be ashamed of witnessing to the Lord, or ashamed of me for being his prisoner. But with me, bear the hardships for the sake of the good news, relying on the power of God who has saved us and called us to be holy. Not because of anything we ourselves have done, but for his own purpose and by his own grace. This grace had already been granted to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has only been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. He abolished death and he has proclaimed life and immortality through the good news, and I have been named its herald, its apostle and its teacher. It is only on account of this that I am experiencing fresh hardships here now, but I have not lost confidence because I know who it is that I have put my trust in and I have no doubt at all that he is able to take care of all that I have entrusted to him until that day. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. To you have I lifted up my eyes, you who dwell in the heavens, my eyes like the eyes of slaves on the hand of their lords. To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. Like the eyes of a servant on the hand of her mistress. So our eyes are on the Lord our God, till he show us his mercy. To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. Alleluia, alleluia. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. Whoever believes in me will not die forever. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Some Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and they put this question to him. Master, we have it from Moses in writing. If a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man must marry the widow to raise up children for his brother. Now, There were seven brothers. The first married a wife and then died, leaving no children. The second married the widow, and he too died, leaving no children. With the third it was the same, and none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman herself died. Now, at the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be, since she had been married to all seven? Jesus said to them, Is not the reason why you go wrong that you understand neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, men and women do not marry. No, they are like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising again, have you never read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are very much mistaken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think there's no denying it. The Sadducees come up with a really weird story. It's a hypothetical, and it's there in order to make the resurrection look ridiculous. So the Sadducees, as we hear in the Gospel, are the ones who deny the resurrection of the body. And so in order to deny the resurrection of the body, they're they're trying to make it look as silly as possible. Now, what they're drawing on is what was known as the Leveret Law. And this is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. And let me quote you a little bit. Listen to this. If brothers live together and one of them dies childless, the dead man's wife may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother must come to her and exercising his duty as brother, make her his wife. And the first son she bears must assume the dead brother's name. By this means, his name will not be obliterated from Israel. All right, so, I mean, by our standards, it's a, it's a rather strange practice, but I, I suppose you can see a little bit of what's standing behind it. In conceiving that firstborn son and naming that firstborn son after the widow's husband... He lives on in some sense. His name is not obliterated from Israel, as we hear. And this, of course, really suits the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. You know, you live on in your children. That's, that's how your presence continues in the world. 
But this idea about a resurrection, no, that's ridiculous. So they come up then with this hypothetical situation that's built around this Leveret law. There are seven brothers, and each of them marries this woman and dies, leaving no children. So at this supposed resurrection of the dead, whose wife will she be? Now, the Sadducees, they don't want an answer to this question. They're not, they're not looking for some clarification about this hypothetical. They're presenting this hypothetical as a sign, as an argument against the resurrection in the first place. But it's built on an assumption. And Jesus exposes the assumption for what it is. The assumption is that they will be raised to the kind of life that they had before. That the resurrection is, in fact, a kind of resuscitation you're back in exactly the same way that you were when you left. And Jesus, of course, says, well, no, that's not what the life of the resurrection is. And Jesus points out in a a rather devastating critique that the reason why the Sadducees don't get it is because they don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now, that's a pretty big body slam. Assuming that the resurrection is rising to the same kind of life that you had before. That this means that you don't get the trajectory of the scriptures and where they're pointing towards, and you don't understand what God is doing in the world. God's work in the world is not about giving more of the same. It's about transforming what is there, raising it up to a new pitch. Now, of course, this passage is very important for us in helping to understand the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. You know, what does salvation look like? What does it mean to be raised from the dead? And while all of that's really very central and very important, what I think we also receive here is a spiritual lesson about how God works. St. Thomas Aquinas famously says that grace builds on nature. In other words, to say that when God transforms us, he doesn't turn us into something else. He makes us more us than we ever have been before. And I, I think this is something of the logic which is operating in the way that Jesus is arguing. He says, look, you guys, you haven't read the scriptures and you don't know God. Doesn't God refer to himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob? He's the God of the living. Belonging to God is the sign that God loves you and wills you to exist and to have life. And to imagine that our lives kind of fall away and decay into death is to be forgetful of the fact that we belong to God. And God is ours, that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. We're in this relationship of love, of of belonging. That's the cause of our hope. But this love, it doesn't give rise merely to a resuscitation of our former life. It's something more than that. God's love and our belonging to him is now expressed in the fact that we're raised to a life where there is no more death, where a woman doesn't have to bury her seven husbands, 
Because in the end, our principal and primary relationship will be the relationship of life and love that we have in God. But we don't lose ourselves in that relationship. We don't become something else. We remain Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but so much more. We are ourselves in a way that we have never been before. Now, all right, we can say that about the general resurrection, but I think it tells us something about God and the way that he works in our lives. He's not come to make us something less or something different. His grace, when it's poured into my heart, makes me more me than I've ever been in my life. God's grace doesn't destroy nature. God's grace builds on our nature, brings it to perfection. In God, Abraham is Abraham, and Isaac is Isaac, and Jacob is Jacob. Because in God, that relationship becomes absolutely central. You know, I think sometimes in our own spiritual lives and in our lives as disciples following Jesus, we can be a little bit captured by fear, a fear of the unknown, that, that sometimes we're unwilling to walk a particular path or we're unwilling to repent of a particular sin because, you know, I can't imagine what I'd be like without it. Or I can't imagine what my life would be like if I took this particular direction. That if I follow Jesus in a place where I'm no longer in command or in control. I think this becomes an important little gospel for us then. Because the path which God lays out for us is a path that makes us more us. This grace doesn't do violence to me and change me into something that I'm not. It makes me, me. So aren't you glad that God doesn't leave us unchanged? That, like the Sadducees imagine, that our life is just a kind of resuscitation, a repeat of of the present existence that we have now. No, the grace which God gives us perfects our nature. It takes what we have and it makes it more authentic. It makes it more what it already is. So I think this becomes a real invitation to trust. To know that God has not come in order to take anything away from me of what makes me, me, and what makes life truly good and beautiful and joy-filled. The Lord longs to give us all these things, and not just at the moment of our death. From the moment when God's grace is poured into our hearts, it doesn't leave us the way that we were. He lifts us up, he heals our wounds, and he entrusts our lives evermore into our own hands so that we may make a gift of ourselves to him. In other words, his grace draws us into that friendship with God, that he would become for us the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. My God, your God. At the Saviour's command, and formed by divine teaching, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Let us welcome Christ into our hearts with an act of spiritual communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. And we finish by praying Pope Francis's prayer to Mary during the coronavirus pandemic. O Mary, you shine continuously on our journey as a sign of salvation and hope. We entrust ourselves to you, health of the sick. At the foot of the cross, you participated in Jesus' pain with steadfast faith. You, salvation of the Roman people, know what we need. We are certain that you will provide, so that as you did in Cana of Galilee, joy and feasting might return after this moment of trial. Help us, Mother of Divine Love, to conform ourselves to the Father's will and to do what Jesus tells us. He who took our sufferings upon himself and bore our sorrows to bring us through the cross to the joy of the resurrection. Amen. We seek refuge under your protection, O Holy Mother of God. Do not despise our pleas we who are put to the test, and deliver us from every danger, O glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father. Amen.